I really have this great sense of um, trying to help the filmmaker out. And, and having this film festival, the Melbourne documentary, is a great apparatus to, to help filmmakers. There are moments of transcendence when you just feel like you can do no wrong. You feel telepathic, you're pointing the camera at the right thing and everything works, you know. It's about being in the moment and that's what I enjoy. That's, that's what excites me. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 28. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. What you are about to listen to is part one of a very special two-part episode that we've put together about the world of the Documentary Film Festival as seen through the eyes of both the filmmaker as well as the festival director. In this series, we will meet with the director of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, Lyndon Stone, who will discuss, among other things, how he first decided to put together a documentary film festival, some of the highlights of the upcoming 2017 event, as well as a few tips on how a documentary filmmaker might best apply to a film festival like MDFF. We will also have the pleasure of speaking with one of New Zealand's most respected documentary filmmakers, Costa Boats, whose film Act of Kindness is one of the films selected for inclusion into the MDFF program. Costa spoke about the rather unique way in which this film came to be, how and why film festivals are a key component to a doc filmmaker's career, and he offers some first-hand insight into how some film festivals make their selections. In part two of the series, we will speak with both Lyndon as well as Richard Wiley, a doco filmmaker who makes his living in the world of broadcast docs, and who also has a film in this year's MDFF. It's called Five Days of Lesvos, and it is his first independent documentary, and it's making some serious waves on the film festival circuit, including Raindance, where it was nominated for Best Feature Documentary, and it was also nominated for Best Documentary at the National Film Awards in the UK. So thanks again for tuning into what is part one of our special series that takes a look at the Documentary Film Festival. Why don't we begin by meeting Lyndon Stone, director for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. How, how I came to reach out to you, Lyndon, is, of course, via yeah. the festival, which you are a director of uh, the Melbourne Documentary yeah. Film Festival. Um, it was, I yeah. think, I mean, I think it was about a, a month ago when someone had, someone from, I'm assuming from your staff had reached out to the documentary life, had reached out to me via, via Twitter and had said, Hey, have you thought about, uh, MDFF or any of their lineup, um, having them on the show? And t- to be honest, yeah. the, the, the timing was serendipitous, Lyndon, because my wife, who helps produce the show, my wife and I had been had been talking about doing a show exclusively about film festivals, and both from the filmmaker's okay. perspective, and then as well as from mm-hmm. the sort of insider's perspective, which of course would be where you would come in. Yeah. And um, and then of course right. w- one thing led led to another, and now I've reached out to you, and and as you and I have now discussed, we're kind of broadening this episode, and it's a special episode here at the Documentary Life for us because. We're really, as I mentioned to you, we want to kind of embody what it is from the filmmaker's perspective to be entering a festival, how and why and what and where that encompasses, as well as sort of that insider perspective, which is 
oh so valuable for someone who's trying to knock down sort of the the golden gates of the film festival circuit and and hopefully um that's where you're going to come in and help us out today yeah sure sounds good so Lyndon, why don't you give me a little bit of background and your relationship to film well i guess you know when i first started with film it's mainly as a volunteer um i did study in wellington new zealand film but uh largely it was more theoretical right and i really wanted to get the practical so i, I volunteered for first started out with dock edge in new zealand which is uh, new zealand's only uh international uh, uh documentary film festival and um it was mainly to get experience in in film festivals and and film and to meet filmmakers and stuff like that and yeah, that's that's where I got involved in the film festival circuit. Okay. Um, and it's been almost like uh, ten years now, so um, it's been a great, uh, great run. Very diverse. I've worked through different genres like documentary, mm. science fiction, horror, fantasy, indie, underground, and I've just got to meet some of the most uh, wonderful and uh, exciting and uh, different filmmakers from all the different genres. But my first love is always documentary and indie filmmaking but uh you know steve james meeting steve james was great um <laughs> lloyd kaufman you know uh it's you know, funny how trauma. many of us have met uh, lloyd i think that's part of his success is he's such a pretty like a gregarious yeah. and outgoing guy right yeah 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 he's a, he's a great person but i really have this great sense of um trying to help the filmmaker out and and having this film festival the melbourne documentary yeah. is a great apparatus to to help people particularly australian filmmakers uh, emerging filmmakers as we know chris uh with with documentary they really struggle to get over the million dollar mark at the box office so having Indeed. a dedicated documentary film festival uh, is a great apparatus to to kind of uh yeah uh, help people out whether it's international people who want to showcase in melbourne or, or local Australian filmmakers um, to encourage them to keep going uh, and to hone their craft. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's all very positive. Yeah. So you worked as a volunteer for years at, at other film festivals. Yeah. How did, sure. what was it, what was it for you that brought you to the decision? You know what? Hey, I think I can do this. My, I, I think I can put one on myself. Did you see a need for the MDFF and, or, and how did you come to that? I, I wanted to kind of, um, to help filmmakers out, um, and to, and also to challenge myself to create something from scratch. And yeah. as I say, there there isn't a dedicated documentary film festival in Melbourne itself. Okay, right. So I saw a, a real need for that um, to to create that uh, from from scratch to see if uh, you know all the skills that I had acquired over you know up to about maybe ten years, whether I could actually you know create something from scratch. And obviously, uh, my wife uh, Susanna encouraged me to do that. Um, and to see what I could do. And also, I wanted to kind of use it, as I say, as this apparatus to help people. Whereas volunteers to get experience in the industry, like curators, marketing, social media, so that they can get some kind of experience uh, and then go through the, into the film industry, you know. So, um, And also for filmmakers to graduate and to, to get the skills and experience uh, by showcasing in, in Melbourne. So it's been very, very successful, uh, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, uh, both critically with the critics and also commercially. It's been, um, yeah, it's been a, a great little experiment. Uh, we do a lot of different things uh, than, you know, traditional documentary film festivals we, we start with a binge watch so you know kind of like netflix like people come along it's like an opening day of, of documentary we also use <laughs> nice. a bit of yeah we also use kind of non-divergent kind of ideas you know as i said I've worked through different genres but we have like double features during the the festival a for the consumer to get more value for money and b also like to maybe to 
uh, attract more consumers into different sessions. So we have maybe two documentaries, two one-hour documentaries together, almost like a, like a drive-in, you know, like a double feature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're just trying these different ideas to see, you know, what because the audience is becoming so discerning with, you know, with video on demand, with television, um, with films. It's trying to use different and divergent ideas to see, you know, what works and what doesn't, you know. So it's a great uh, experiment, this festival, you know, to see, um, you know, what a festival is and, and, and how it can grow and, and how different ideas can work, yeah, with it. Well, you know, and from different genres too. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, I'm actually shocked to hear that a city like Melbourne has not, has not had its own dedicated documentary film festival. Um, to say that you're, you're the first and MDFF is the first of its kind, that's really shocking. Why do you think yeah. that is? Well, it's funny you say that. Like, I mean, with uh, Sydney and Tanner's, I think just been going five years, as has Doc New York City, right. you know, yeah. which has just been five years. So we're, we're still in that kind of, you know, inception kind of such stage with, with those kind of festivals. But, um, I mean, you're right. If you go to North America, particularly in Canada, if you look at um, uh, Europe, there's such a proliferation of uh, documentary film festivals. But it's interesting, like places like Sydney and uh, New York, I mean, it's only been five years since, you know, Doc New York City was created and also yeah. – and Tanner and Sydney, but, um, you know, we're just a, another one that's just starting up. But I don't know why in those cities, you know, which are very cosmopolitan, very highly educated, why they haven't really uh, taken hold. You, you would think they've been going for 20 or 30 years. But, oh, man, um, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that they just haven't, just within the last, you know, half decade yeah. started to, to kind of emerge, yeah. I think with the prol- proliferation of, of film festivals, period, in the past 15 to 20 years, uh, you just, I guess you just assume that every major city has one and maybe they do for feature films and maybe it's more specifically documentary film festivals um, are now catching up. Well, I think there's a voracious appetite for, uh, you know, documentary, Uh, particularly, I think a lot of people are very discerning uh, by getting that online or on through television. Absolutely. Right. Um, that's right. And with, with, with the, it's, it's interesting with the box office with, with documentary because obviously, you know, a lot of documentaries struggle to break that million-dollar mark. You know, if it was, you know, action, comedy, science fiction, horror, you know, they're making 40, 50, 60, 100 million dollars. But with documentary, um, they're widely popular on Netflix, on TV, but on film festivals and, well, at, at the box office, they, they seem to kind of struggle to break that million-dollar mark. And I'm always curious, again, coming back to that idea of, of challenging, you know, mm-hmm. of challenges, Chris, you know, how to, to maybe market documentary, how to make it more maybe um, more accessible uh, to people. Um, the other thing, just, just going back to, you know, why I uh, started this, this festival, um, I was actually in South Auckland, uh, uh, the movie was Tyson by uh, James Marbeck. Right. Um, and I was in South Auckland watching this uh, documentary, and it was completely full, packed out. Uh, in South, this was in um, Auckland, uh, South Auckland, uh, Manukau, and it, it was completely full, full of people. Yes. Um, it was a very kind of blue-collar kind of crowd and stuff like that. And I got to thinking, you know, everyone kind of likes documentary, but not everyone goes to a film festival or go to a documentary at the theatre. And I was just trying to figure, yes. you know, why that is and and try to use different things. Like we, we use an art space and we kind of try to create uh, documentaries that would appeal to perhaps maybe a broader audience. Um, 
So in, in using different ideas, like we, we use a lot of uh, music documentaries this year, almost like a rock concert, you know. So I see that. Yes. Um, just trying to, to do different things to, to maybe make documentary more accessible, um, fun, you know, a bit uh, divergent. Um, and we'll, we'll see how we go, but so far, so good, you know? Well, I love it. I love it, Lyndon, because it's early days for you and MDFF. And so you have that the you have the luxury of being able to really experiment right now and you and and you can try new things yeah. each year and that's really really exciting um yeah, yeah it is yeah good on you for 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 doing this Lyndon, let's um let's move on now a little bit to uh what i had hearkened to earlier which is i would love to give my listeners some insight into what is happening behind the scenes when they're applying to when they're applying to get their films into festivals, how aware should applicants be in the preference of programming for a film festival? So, if, if you're going to recommend to to someone who is applying to to uh, to MDFF, yes. let's use MDFF obviously here, and would yes. you say that they should really? How acquainted should they be? with the general programming. Well, it's interesting because we do program what comes in through the door, you know? So uh, this yeah. year there's been a lot of documentaries on things like, uh, you know, refugees, migrants, immigrants and stuff like that. We've got some great documentaries. Uh, Migrant Dreams, we've got uh, Five Days on Lesbos. Right. Uh, Mrs. Keats' Children. So we kind of intuitively program the themes that come in and also try to okay. marry that up with, uh, you know, what's happening in the greater narrative in, in Australia, you know, what audiences in Australia uh, like. We always try to look at themes of gentrification. We had a great one last year, Good Night Brooklyn, the story of death by audio. Yeah, um, great, great. This year we're, we're looking at one big home about uh, McMansions and trophy homes, you know. <laughs> so, um, and it, in a roundabout kind of way, it does relate to Melbourne because, you know, as I say, uh, gentrification is something that is very central to, to uh, Melbourne at the moment because it's expanding so quickly and so exponentially. You know, how do you get that right? You know, how do you preserve, you know, uh, historical buildings but also be progressive? Is it even possible? So I like the themes that come out of, of the festival each year and themes and motives that will relate to, to Australia. So I, I always try to, to intuitively program – well, we, we try to intuitively program – documentaries that will appeal to um, a greater audience in, in Australia mm. and things that, that, that relate to them, you know, and that's, and that's again, trying to connect to the audience with things that, that will interest them and, and actually are relevant to them. Yeah. Do you encourage filmmakers to reach out to you directly and, and, and engage in some kind of dialogue, say before, um, before they submit their film? So say a filmmaker has a question um, about the festival or about um about something about their film. Are you encouraging dialogue yeah. beforehand? A lot of people contact us. Like we, we get like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, people inquiring about, you know, having their documentary submitted to us. So I guess it, it, it is that kind of um, kind of narrative, if it is a right fit for, for them or, and also the festival and stuff like that. So we do have these kind of um, these dialogues that do happen uh, with, with filmmakers Um just to see if it is, you know, a viable option for them and whether it's the, it's the right fit and, and just general questions about the festival. Um, at the end of the day, we're just trying to, um, I guess, um, make sure that it's a filmmaker's film festival. And uh, so we obviously we try and do things like if people request if they want it, we can look at um, stuff like, you know, feedback. 
Um, we look at things like, um, you know, we've got the awards and stuff like that as, as kind of subsidies as well mm-hmm. um, and prizes and stuff like that okay, from things okay. like, you know, Curiosity Stream, Rock Play. But, yeah, as I say, we try to have a kind of a, like a filmmaker's film festival where, where people can approach us um, and uh, we can have a dialogue about um, their film yeah. and, and whether it can compete or not. And uh, sometimes for different reasons, you know, some films may not be eligible to compete. Um, it's about trying to find the, the right right fit for both the filmmaker and the film festival and, and to strike that balance, yeah. Okay, what, now now what are you looking for specifically in, uh, in someone's submission? And what are you looking for that's going to make someone stand out from the stack of, of, of films that you have or applications? It comes back to storytelling and how they've told their story how they've used like cinematography, how they've edited the film, how they've um, used subject different kind of uh, mediums to, to tell that story. It really comes back to, to the way that they've told the story and how effectively they've told the story. But in terms of themes and motives, you know, we've got such a broader range of documentaries. You probably had a look at the program there, Chris. Um, mm. We're not kind of prescriptive or have any kind of, we're, we're very open-minded, you know, with, with what comes through the door. We try to yeah, look at like um, different things. Um, but, Things that would, you know, automatically kind of, you know, uh, I guess kind of we'd decline a documentary on would probably if it's kind of, you know, freely available um, for the competition right. uh, online right. or if it was um, for the feature films, documentaries. And also if it were, um, if it's already had like a theatrical bow in in Australia. Uh, and we yes. do get a lot of people approached by that, you know, can, will I be able to do that? And because of our terms and conditions, we were unable to do those kind of things right. um, for the feature documentaries, okay. um, for the competition. But uh, yeah, uh, as I said, we're very open-minded. Yeah. Okay. So, so Lenny, give my listeners, if you could give my listeners a glimpse into the film selection process of MDFF. And I mean, yeah. literally starting from the moment you or someone from your staff sort of receives the download of the film or the packet, or are you also receiving postal packages? What's the process someone's film goes through from that very beginning up until the moment of selection through selection, I should say. We have uh, six to eight curators. Um, Majority of those are for short documentary. What we, uh, what we tend to do is we have a curation form uh, where we have uh, different aspects that we look at in terms of uh, the film, and then we grade the film. And then towards the the end of the uh, uh, the festival submission period, we look to kind of to rank them and look to kind of look for themes and motives and to to put them uh, all together in terms of uh, the showcase for for the uh, the festival. So it's very, yeah. So we have a volunteer running, it and it's it's you're so humbled by people that you know holding down jobs or studying. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, do a lot of reviews and stuff like that. Um, you know, whether they do, you know, 100 reviews or if they do, you know, 20 reviews in a month, you're just, you're just humbled by what, what they can do and when they can do it. So, you know, I'm never like, you know, hey, you've got this deadline. That's up to me. So I make sure that, you know, all the deadlines are met and stuff like that. Okay. But um, it's hard because it is a volunteer run, run film festival, but you're just right. thankful for the help you get and when you get it, you know. So, um Yes, but uh, got some great curators who've, uh, as I say, hold down jobs, who study, and find the time to help uh, you know curate um, documentaries. I think it's a great job because, as I say, they get uh, access to documentaries that 
sometimes they'll be the first people in Australia to see them, stuff That's from right. South by Southwest, right. stuff from Dock, New York City. I think it's really exciting. I think it's a really cool job, yeah. And so at the point, are you whittling down a number to say, you know, 50 films and then you whittle it down to 20 films and then do you guys all get together um, in a room and, and do you have people pair off and sort of advocate for the films that they would like to see in the festival? How does it work towards the final selections? How do you get to that? What does sure. that look like? Yeah. Well, we look, we look at the grades in terms of what they get. Um, and then what we do is with this particular senior curators, we go through like a quality audit with them. So I, I'll go through them uh, with the final list. And then we'll, as you say, like you say, we whittled those down uh, to the final selections, you know. So, um, yeah, so that that's basically um, kind of about what we do in terms of the process. So we grade the, the documentaries and then we have this kind of final kind of quality audit where we go through um, as we move towards the, I mean, at the end of the day, the final call is mine, but what we do is is to kind of get those, whittle them down to the festival. Yeah, so, so it takes a whole year, the whole the whole process and stuff like that to, from where yeah. to go. Uh, but um, there's some amazing stuff out there. It's hard sometimes to turn down stuff that has premiered it at Hot Docs. I, I have had, you know, filmmakers, you know, um, you know, approach me in the premiere at Hot Docs. We just don't have the capacity at this stage. Correct. That's why I was a little bit interested in going online because, um, yeah. you know, it could help more filmmakers to showcase in Australia. But again, the thing is a lot of people is I'm applying because I want to share it with an audience, not to be online, you know. Right. So it's interesting to try to, you know, to strike that balance with, with the filmmaker. Um, yeah. How many of the filmmakers, I guess, are, are you bringing bringing into your into MDFF? And do you guys cover travel and accommodations? Like, like how does that work for the filmmaker? Well, it is on a case by case basis. As I say, you know, we're a small, you know, kind of as I say, volunteer run film festival. Exactly. Um, we try we try our best to accommodate. We've got, um, I guess, this year uh, we've got Costa Bots who's coming out. We've yep. got uh, Jack Thompson. Uh, who's coming out? Greg Reeves, who's a producer in Sydney. Uh, Jack, Jack Pritchard, coming out. But largely, um, as I say, we're still starting up. You know, sometimes with the funding bodies, they want to see you going for three or five years before they come on board. Uh, and when that kind of happens, I think we'll be able to do more with bringing more filmmakers out. But at this stage, right. I mean, we've been straight up on on um, our film special stage. Like we don't cover flights. Yes. Uh, accommodation we may be able to do. Got it. Um, and, and that's exactly what we've done this year with people that have said, yep, I'm going to fly out. We've looked at ways that we can come to the party in terms of helping with accommodation yes. and stuff like that. But it's, it's hard because we, we, we would love to bring more people out, but, you know, we also have a budget as well. So it's trying to get right that balance. I, I, I think moving forward with the festival three to five years, it'll be a different story. But at this stage, we're still at that inception stage. So well, and Linda, it's hard, though, because we'd, we'd love to bring more people. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. and, and, and you know, in all in all candor and frankness, do you think the major ones? Do you think um, our hot docs and Sundance are they uh, Toronto International? Are they bringing people out um, completely on their own dime, or are they perhaps a select number of filmmakers are coming out uh, that's paid for the I, festival? I, I, What's I think, your guess? Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah, I think it'd be a bit, a bit of a uh, bit of both, but I think yeah. you know if they were they were first starting out, I, I think they would probably be in the same position as I was. You know? yeah, that's it's, what I would think. It's hard if if if, if, if we had the funds, we, we would definitely do it. But at the moment, we're still starting up and making a sustainable model, you know. So, um, but if the money was there, no question, I'd do that. But I have been straight up on the film submission, saying, look, we we don't do flights. We make right. we can look at accommodation if you're selected. 
So um, yeah, I think that that's fair. Yeah, at this stage. And then, ideally, what I'd like to do is, if we can have some sponsorship from you know Melbourne funding bodies, is to use that to pay for the venues. And then we use other sponsorship in that to to fly the people out. That's the kind of long term kind of we were tracking. You know, so um, okay. that's what I'd like to do anyway. Yeah. There are plenty of places online to learn how to do things like split the audio signals coming into your camera, or how to animate some of your still photos, or get some great tips on lighting your interview, many blogs, YouTube videos, and of course podcasts where you can quickly grab an answer to a tech-related question. But what if there was one place where you could learn from beginning to end how to make a documentary film and how to become a doc filmmaker, how to raise money and build an audience for your doc, how to form strategic partnerships and launch your doc out into the world, and perhaps even, if you can imagine, make some money from it? Well, there is such a place, and it's called the Documentary Academy. Steph and I took two years to build out this comprehensive resource that takes you step-by-step from story creation and pre-production all the way to post-production, launch, and distribution. The Academy takes you through your doc filmmaking journey as your most confident, active, strategic, creative, focused, and articulate self. It is a step-by-step guide to empowerment in the documentary filmmaking world. We know what we have in the Documentary Academy. Now it's up to you to discover what you have as a doc filmmaker. Do that today by heading over to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. I, I did a job. I shot a job a couple of years ago in, uh, in Melbourne, and that's the first time I had, I've been to Australia. First and only time I've spent time in Australia. And I loved the city. I absolutely loved the city. And I look forward to, to getting, back there, getting back there again someday, hopefully soon. I would love to attend, if not have a film, at, at MDFF. Um, uh, your lineup is is tremendous. I wish that I could see all of those films. I wish I could attend this year. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. But in, yeah. in in the interest of time, of course, we with this podcast we could dedicate the next year talking to all these filmmakers. Um, yeah. but, but with this particular right. episode, yeah. as you know, we have a couple of a couple of directors who are going to be on Costa Boats as well as Richard uh, Richard Wiley. And uh, right. we're we're honored and and excited to, to to have them on the show and to talk about both their films, Act of Kindness, yeah. and then Five Days of Lesvos. Um, what was it about yeah. these guys that made you have to have this included in MDFF? When I was looking at at um, documentary, uh, as I said, when we're talking about this declining audience or this audience that's not coming into the cinema or uh, to festivals. What I want to do is kind of bring kind of some cinematic kind of uh, conventions to the festival. And with Act of Kindness uh, from Costa Bites, what I really liked about the documentary is it's kind of like that. I don't know if you've seen that movie Lion, the Australian movie Lion. I do um, know of it. I have not actually know, seen Nicole it yet. Kippen. Yeah, I think you should, you should watch it. Okay. It's kind of had that same kind of person on a personal odyssey looking to search for someone who was very kind for them during uh, uh, the Rwanda uh, troubles that were happening there, right. uh, and obviously I know Cost is, a, is a, one of New Zealand's most well-known documentary filmmakers. So when I saw that was submitted, I was like, "Wow, this is great!" Not only was I going to find Johnson, 
I was going to make a film about it. I'd never made a documentary before. That didn't worry me. But there was one thing that did. Johnson was one man in 10 million. And all I knew was his first name. It is by far not a typical documentary. Um, it, it, and what I mean by that is it's... Um, it's not typical in the way the story is tell, told. It's more found footage than anything else. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, and, 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 and by the time that you got your hands on the footage, um, it had been shot, from what I understand, years prior. Um, why don't That's you help right. us, help my listeners understand what Act of Kindness is about and how you came on to the project? Well, what it's about is a young New Zealander who had had um, quite a, a scary, horrifying near-death experience um, in Burundi, which is um, in Eastern Africa. And he had escaped that situation with his life, and he still had his passport, but nothing else. <laughs> He'd had everything right. else taken from him. And he ended up uh, basically uh, getting a lift in, into the next country, Rwanda, so he arrives in Rwanda in the middle of the night, gets dropped at the bus station there, and he had nothing. And he was also in, I would say, some level of uh, post-traumatic shock mm. and uh, and became quite frightened. And, and then out of, out of this sort of frightening situation, this man came up to him, a man who was uh, crippled, um, looked like hell, and, and the guy comes up and... Uh, he starts speaking in, in good English. And uh, this young guy who's a New Zealander, his name is Sven, he uh, accepted an offer of help from this crippled beggar because that's what he was. He was just begging in this in this um, square in the, within the bus station. And ended up going home with this guy who introduced himself as Johnson. He only gave us one name. And Johnson, it turned out, lived in a homeless shelter and uh, attached to a church in the middle of um, Kigali in, in Rwanda. Right. And Sven basically lived with this guy for the next four or five days, and Johnson would go out during the day and beg, and then he'd you know, spend 50 cents, because um, that's all it took to, 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 buy, to buy Sven a meal. And, um, and while Sven was in the homeless shelter, he was also interacting with 38 other men uh, all of whom were, were crippled to some degree or another, all of them beggars and all of them victims of the, the Rwandan genocide. What uh, Sven was experiencing with these men was, I guess, the aftermath. He was, he was, he was seeing guys and hearing stories that were you know, utterly horrific, and yet the spirit of these men was, was, was very strong. And um, when Johnson told him his story, it was just appalling, you know, this, a, a story of terrible, terrible loss. And Sven was was very moved by that. Um, but meanwhile, he was in this situation where he had no money, right? And didn't know how he was going to get out of it. And, and Johnson's advice to him was, "Look, you, you've got to go and beg for a ride um, and get out of this country." And Sven had arranged um, a volunteer job in Uganda. That was the purpose of him being in Africa. He wanted to hitchhike across Africa and then end up in Uganda and do this job. Got so it. he thought, "Well, if I can get to Uganda, I'll be able to, you know, get some help." 
and reestablish connections with my family and get some money and, and I'll be okay. And actually, that's what, what sort of happened. He, he, he got a ride. He got out of Rwanda. But what happened was he got that ride with very little notice and he had no opportunity to say goodbye and thank you to this benefactor, this, this crippled man who had, had helped him through these few days. Um, and that experience never left Sven. It kind of haunted him. And um, many years later, uh, he had an opportunity to, to go back to Rwanda and he decided almost at the last minute to, to take a camera and document um, his search for this guy who helped him out. And all he wanted to do was just find him, just to see if he was okay, and I guess say a, a very belated thank you. So Act of Kindness is a film about a guy looking for a guy, <laughs> and he only knew his name. He only knew, Sorry, he only knew his first name, right. um, Johnson. Johnson, please give me a call. Yeah? This is how you get in touch. 0878-5212. With information. Information about Johnson. He didn't he didn't know whether that was a first name or a, or a surname. And Rwanda is a very crowded place. Like it's it's actually the most crowded country on earth. There's 10 million people um, in a tiny little postage stamp of a country. Sven's attempt to try and find this guy was probably pure folly. Uh, but he took that camera and he documented what what he did every step of the way. And at the end, he had a, um, a plastic lunchbox full of um, DV tapes. But he didn't know what to do with it and ended up, um, <laughs> by a series of steps, he ended up back in New Zealand a few years later. And uh, eventually he he told his story at a, at a pitch forum, a pitching forum. Oh. And uh, somebody who was there from our New Zealand Film Commission, which is our, our national funding body, hmm. heard that pitch and was really impressed. And they rang me up and they said, look, I just heard the most amazing story and I think you should meet this guy because he obviously needs help. I see. Trying to okay. do something for this footage, yeah. So that's where it started, where our relationship started. And, boy, we went through um, a number of um, twists and turns and blind alleys and dead ends and followed red herrings. And, uh, but eventually I finally got it together and I, and I figured it all out. It was, it was one hell of a monkey puzzle, actually, once I got that box of film open and started looking at all the footage. It was pretty tricky stuff. Costa, how many hours of footage did he have? Well, not enough, actually. It was about 30. Yeah. Uh, I wish it was more like 60. Sure. Um, and, uh, and the trouble was there were a lot of uh, ellipses, a lot of gaps. And some of the footage, a lot of the footage actually was shot um, not just by Sven, but by this lovely young man named Fabrice, ah, who indeed. ended up... Uh, ended up helping Sven a lot. He sort of became his local guide. His fixer, fixer translator, and, uh, right. Translator, and um, 
well, unfortunately, he was also the uh, the camera operator at times. <laughs> yes. Fabrice's style of camera operating could only be described as beautifully eccentric. <laughs> that would be a kind way to describe it. <laughs> yes, that's very very well put. <laughs> very kind of you. You know what I'd love to hear? Give my listeners some idea what it's like for a filmmaker like yourself to have a project like project like this sort of dropped on your lap. And more than that, it's not a project that's dropped in your lap. You have footage for a film, potential film that's dropped in your lap. What is your approach with a film that you prior to this had no connection to and a story that you didn't have a connection to? And how do you fashion a story out of that? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know. There's no simple answer to that. Uh, all I can tell you is that it took me way too long to figure it out. And I wish I'd sort of dug into the footage much sooner. So my advice to any documentary filmmaker would be know your footage, know what you've actually got. Because at first glance, when I when I looked through it, I thought, no, this isn't going to work. It's it's a beautiful story, but it's just not here in, this, yeah. in, in these tapes. And that was really not a deep enough um, immersion in the footage for me to have made that judgment. Okay. And it led to it led to wasted time and led to wasted ambitions. You know, like we were talking seriously about going back to Rwanda and shooting more stuff and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. And anyway, of course, I wondered. I assumed that conversation had to have happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it wasted time. It, it, it led to, um, you know, it, it led to fruitless sort of angst, really. And because um, it meant you, know, you had to end up, like I said before, asking permission to make a film. You had to try and raise money to go to Rwanda. And, and uh, possibility was there, but one thing and another always got in the way, and it never happened. And it never happened. And I just got so exasperated in the finish. I just pulled all that footage out loaded it up and just started i thought bugger it i'm just gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> so you started assembling it i just started playing around with it just and i thought well you know if i think there are gaps let, let's find them let's actually see where there's gaps yeah. because yeah um and i started assembling and it just started materializing in front of me and i think because i often turned my mind to it over you know it took about three four years and over that time sometimes you're working when you're not working you know like your, your mind's actually um, ticking away in the background and you're and you're solving things without really realizing it a lot of creative solutions so, happen when uh, uh, when we just don't quite have the resources isn't that always the case with with uh, especially with documentary filmmakers right yeah and um i try and understand the character i try and understand you know what's the theme here what is it that i really want it to say and what is it the characters want and what's standing in their way so i, I take a dramatic approach to try and understand the material Mm-hmm. And then as much as possible, I try to get out of the way and um, just sort of let the unconscious work a little bit. But I often, um, I will preview and I'll review and I'll, you know, I'll restructure like crazy. So it's 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 sort of just letting uh, the unconscious or the creative have its way. But then I do apply a more analytical approach um, and to, to the final structuring of the material. It's fun for me. It's it's what I most enjoy. I don't I don't particularly like shooting. I don't you know it, it's it's constantly stressful and disappointing and nothing goes the way you want it to. And I've just learned to sort of just live with that and and not moan and bitch too much. But the bit I enjoy <laughs> is bringing it all back home and trying to make sense of it. There's six million directors of photography who are way better <laughs> at that than I am or right. ever will be. Yeah, yeah. But only I can shoot a film the way I can shoot a film. And uh, uh, they're probably not not too many people are going to hire me to shoot their films, and I don't even want to be hired <laughs> to shoot their films. But right. I do want to shoot my own. 
because it's about the relationship I have with the subject. And if it's just me there, I will be able to get things out of them that I can't get if yeah. I've got another person there. Or, yeah, absolutely. Or another two people there. It's, it's, it comes down to the style of film that you want to make. I mean, I sit in movie theatres and I watch these beautifully, um, beautifully shot documentaries with fantastic sound and, and lovely lighting. And, and, and frankly, I am jealous. <laughs> ah. It's not an but, easy thing to admit, my friend. But it, it, that's not the kind of film that I make when, when things go down. It's about being in the moment. And that's what I enjoy. That's that's what excites me. Um, and actually, when I'm shooting, too, because I said I didn't enjoy shooting, but there are moments of transcendence oh. when you just feel like you can do no wrong. You yeah. feel telepathic. You're pointing the camera at the right thing and everything works, you know, and that makes it worthwhile for all the other times when when things don't work out. But, you know, you can always get something. Um, I have confidence in my editing. I may be a master of none, but I'm pretty good at editing. Hey all you Doc Lifers, I wanted to take a quick moment to make a pretty exciting announcement. You may or may not know that this month, June 2017, marks the one year anniversary of the documentary life. So we are celebrating this rather momentous occasion by making a pretty momentous announcement. As of July 7th, we are expanding the show to become a weekly program. Yep, you heard that correctly. We are literally going to be doubling the output of episodes. Not only that, but we're going to be making some changes to our current format. Among other things, now each and every episode will contain a segment hosted by myself and a segment that is a shared conversation with the Doc Industry guest, which is basically combining elements of the two shows per month into one episode per week. So you'll be getting lots more information and inspiration in which you can apply to your own documentary life. To stay on top of more updates like this, podcast and blog notifications, film screenings, online tutorials, as well as special discounts and promotions only offered to listeners of this show, go to the website and sign up to become a Doc Lifer. That website is thedocumentarylife.com. The website contains special show notes that coincide with all episodes, the podcast archive, the TDL store, and the TDL blog, where we post the latest articles that we think will inspire and inform you to best live and lead your own documentary life. So again, head to the Documentary Life website today and sign up to become a Doc Lifer. One of my favorite moments in Act of Kindness was, uh, and I felt like it's because I can relate to the moment um, in working in a, a developing country. I, I just loved when he's sitting in his room and he just has the camera on himself and he's mm. listening to the radio broadcast. Oh yeah. And within yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 seconds, the phone calls start coming in. And then by, it's like, you know, by uh -huh. the ninth or 10th phone call, he, it, it dawns on him. Holy shit. Maybe this wasn't the way to go. And, and then the night, the naivete sort of sets in and it's a mm. great moment because I feel like in operating in developing countries, myself i know how that sort of a situation happens and i know how he came to the decision to do it in the first place i i, I totally well, got it it was great well you know if you're interested um there's a couple of points there the first really important point i'd like to make and and maybe this could be included in yeah. the in the broadcast i mean it's, it's nice for me to sort of um receive uh kudos and and um get nice notes back about the film but i've got to remember that sven was the guy on the ground that actually shot it and that moment that you've just described yeah yeah uh that is a brilliant piece of direction actually oh. <laughs> you know like the presence of mind 
the thought process to actually set that camera up and make sure it's running when that's <laughs> happening because yeah. that is the real deal and he's and he's it actually is. thought about it and he's made sure that the camera's rolling when it's happening and he's got it you know that's right so even though I might moan and groan about things he might not have got he's got <laughs> some great moments and that was definitely um, one of them yeah yeah it definitely um, jumped out to me the other the other thing is, and this is something that Sven sort of took some pains to um, make clear to me, uh, and I and I did research on the genocide, but but you know so did he uh, subsequently, and um, the irony is that the genocide happened because of Radio Rwanda. Oh, absolutely! The, the That's the first thing I thought. <laughs> yeah, the, the the well, you would because you're probably better informed than a lot of people, but the you know the, the call to people to go out and start hacking their neighbors to death. Right. That happened across the radio. And That's the irony right. is that, um, you know, that, that, that Sven's breakthrough, if you like, the, the, the ability to sort of get somewhere in his quest came through radio. Came so through the radio not broadcast. Not much changes. Mm. I know. It's amazing. Well, when he was meeting with the, um, the, the two women who worked for, for the radio station, uh, the yes. national radio station. I just thought, yeah, of course, of course, this is what they're going to use. This is what this is how people get their information. And oh, by the way, this is exactly how people received the quote-unquote information to go out and start hacking their neighbors. Yeah, oh yeah, I made that parallel pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I sort of agonized about whether to make that explicit or not, and we yeah, didn't. In the yeah, end. Um, I'm glad you didn't. I thought, I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I just decided. Well, this isn't. This is not a history of the genocide. It's not. It's not about that. It's about um, about a country picking itself up and and continuing to live afterwards. The thing that haunted me, and it's sort of again hinted at in the film rather than spelled out. But how do you live in a country where you know your father's murderer? That's right. That's right. You know, when you see them at the corner shop, and I think there's a number of movies in that, and maybe this is one of them. <laughs> Uh, Costa, it's at, it's at, it's at the heart of a lot of the work that I do, um, in particular in the country of Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Cambodia has become a bit of a home away sure. from from home for me, and um, that's something that the idea of genocide just happening, you know, thirty oh, forty years ago, and living mm -hmm. with the people who, you know, may have killed your family and living alongside them is. It's a, it's an amazing thing, and it's a heartbreaking and amazing and sometimes therapeutic thing. To witness, if mm. you've watched any documentaries about Cambodia, it seems like nine out of ten of those documentaries always deal with, 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 with the darkness and always deal with the genocide. And our film wants to be kind of removed, not removed from it, but sort of transcend that and uh, and and bring sort of a a positive message to it and and tell a positive story in a country where positive stories aren't often shown in the portrayal of the country. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly what. What, what I wanted to do as well, because when I looked at Sven's footage, yeah. I wasn't seeing a bloodbath. I was seeing right. people just getting on with it, just getting on with life. And what struck me was how, how ordinary everything seemed, you know? And um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally just want to make films that do celebrate things like kindness mm. and um, that, that maybe in a small way, just make life a little bit better. And I also believe that art can transcend or survive anything. Oh, wow! You know, even even a genocide that 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 ultimately what's what's left when history has burned everything else away tends to be the good things or the the positive things. Or I would like to think so.
Costal, let's transition a little bit now to film festivals. Give give my listeners an, an idea of, of what your approach has been and your attitude has been towards film festivals from a documentary filmmaker's uh, perspective. Talking about film festivals, it's, um, it's a fraught topic because uh, in my own experience, I've had some success and I've had moments of sheer, utter frustration. Without a film festival, I think in today's um, market, in today's world, without getting a good film festival premiere, it's really, really hard to justify yourself, either to yourself or to the world. Oh. Festivals are that important. They you know, they provide um, a focus of attention. They can bring you kudos, um, and not just kudos, but, but actual you know, interest from people who can show your film, who can spread it further around the world, who can maybe, maybe, not that often, but bring some income to you as well. Right. So that's all, all becomes possible with a, with a good festival premiere. Much more than simply personal validation. Well, I got to say, I, I, I spend a lot of my life and career uh, just getting by on personal validation <laughs> rather than external. <laughs> so you it's and not me to be both, sneezed pal. at. <laughs> but you know, when when I got a film into Venice, for instance, that was a wonderful moment. It kept me going for years. And yeah. uh, more recent times, I had a premiere at Toronto. I've had um, films premiering at Hot Docs. These were significant, important life events for me, and actually, you know, they they, they give you a career. They give you um, they give you external validation as yes. well as the internal. You got to have both. Did you attend Toronto or Hot Docs? Yes, I did. You did. And, uh, and what was that experience like for you? Fantastic. Yeah. Um, it was nothing like. I mean, at Toronto, we showed a film called The Last Dogs of Winter, which yes. um, was actually set in Canada, hmm. and. At the end, we got a standing ovation, and I had people coming up to me. One guy with tears in his eyes, saying, oh. "Thank you for showing me what it means to be a Canadian." I thought, "Well, okay, I wasn't expecting that." Oh, that's pretty um, heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, they wanted to know what what is a New Zealander doing in Canada making a movie. Sure. <laughs> I, I asked myself the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you get drawn to certain topics, you get drawn to certain subjects and characters, most of all. Hmm. And then if I can see a way to make the film, I'll just move heaven and earth. And most of all, I just want to make films that are uh, makeable independently, which means that if I can do it on my own credit card, I'll do that rather than go and put out the begging bowl for money. And here's the problem, though, when it comes to film festivals. It's very, very hard, certainly in my own experience, to get noticed by a festival if you're flying your own little independent pirate flag, you yes. know, like if if you're just Mr. Mr. Indie guy with a little orphan film from who knows where. Wellington, New uh, Zealand. I sort of come to believe that they don't even look at them. Hmm. Whereas if your film has a national badge on it. Now, the film I showed in Toronto did. It was funded by the New Zealand Film Commission. And there's an uh. instant impact there. Which means that when the Toronto selector comes calling, yes, that's where they go. They go into the film commission office and they look at the film commission funded stuff. They don't, they don't um, go and solicit and say, "Hey, everybody um, on the other side of the country that uh, doesn't have film commission funding, um, you know, show us what you've got." They don't do that. They'll go and look at the the films which the funding body recommends. Look, I mean, a film can cut through. I, I had a film called Candyman, the David Klein story, yes, which was about a um, a Los Angeles candy inventor, and that didn't have New Zealand Film Commission funding. Yeah, 
and that made it into hot dogs. Um, they saw it at uh, a festival called Slam Dance. Yeah, of course. And, Very well known. Um, as it turns out, I spoke to their selector at Slam Dance. I said, why, why did you go for our film? And he says, well, thing is, I've got this relationship with my dad. And as soon as he said that, I knew what the answer was. Now, in, in that film, it's about a guy who invented the Jelly Belly Jelly Bean, and, and um, <laughs> he's, a, he's a wild sort of guy, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a father-son story. Uh-huh. So that and spoke to the to um, Yeah, yeah. And with Last Dogs of Winter, uh, again, I spoke to the selector, and she'd come over to New Zealand, and the film commission had showed her, shown her a number of films. Yeah. I said, why did you pick this one? And she said, oh, well, you know. Well, she's a dog lover. <laughs> she's crazy about dogs. So when she saw our poster, she just went, "Oh wow!" I, oh, I guess she was just open open to it. Look, sometimes it's as flaky as that, uh, really. And, and you know, you, you think to yourself, "Well, I think I made a good film." But right, there's but so many good films out there. So sure. many good films. <laughs> Look, it can be any number of things that that a selector can go for. But the the de facto truth is, if you're talking a list festivals, if you're talking the Venice, Berlin. Cannes, uh, Toronto, you know, the, the, the big important festivals, their selectors go out into the world and they're getting recommendations from the big funding bodies. That's right. Right? And uh, the other thing is you're not going to see any festival in the world that's going to show more than, say, two or three maximum titles from any single country. Right. So, so the thing is, if you're from New Zealand or Australia or Britain, you're not only up against the rest of the world, you're up against your fellow filmmakers sure. as well. So if, if in, say, New Zealand, there's 12 to 15 feature documentaries made here every year, well, only one or none, <laughs> but certainly no more than two of those pictures are going to be selected for uh, Toronto. And uh, there might actually be you know, a good half dozen of really good films. Uh, my advice... To people and I wish I'd taken this advice with active mm. kindness is sure you can set your sights high high and you can dream of Khan and Venice and all the rest but you've got to be realistic really mm. and um, the fact is if, if yours is a little indie film without some strong really compelling connection inside it some strong X factor uh, it's not going to get selected by those big festivals it just won't but there are a lot of other festivals and a, and a lot of festivals that can do you um, do you good then tell us how how did how did MDFF and Melbourne Documentary Film Festival how did this happen Costa for Act of Kindness? Well, very simply, uh, you'll be aware. Maybe a lot of people listening will be aware of uh, um, outfits like Film Freeway mm, and Without a Box. Right. You know, these are clearing houses, and they expedite the process of um, applying to film festivals, and they certainly have you know streamlined that process and made it make it a lot easier than it ever used to be. So, you know, you, you take your pebbles to the pond and and you throw the pebbles out and into the pond and hopefully um, a ripple comes back to you. And in the case of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, thankfully, um, they, they like the film and they've programmed it, so, which I'm very grateful for because it gives um, a new lease of life to this, to this title and uh, it, it brings it some attention, brings me some attention, and this is what it's about. 
I have Lyndon on the program. Uh, he speaks very highly mm-hmm. of of not only of act of kindness, of course, but it really of you as a filmmaker as a whole. I know that he was extremely excited to see that 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 Costa Boats had had applied with a film um, to MDFF. So I know that he's very excited to have you a part of the program. Well, that's very kind of him to say. <laughs> Uh, how were you informed of Act of Kindness's inclusion in, into the program? I, I got an email, hmm. and uh, it, it made a sweet contrast to a lot of rejection letters. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and the rejection letters, by the way, um, uh, they were always the same, and they always sort of beat their breasts with sadness at the fact that they, they got really so do. many <laughs> great and, and i'm and i'm like there was an I, extraordinary I number of, of 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 films to choose from yes, this yes. year and yeah yeah we are sorry to say uh, that yours it, was not one of them yeah yeah so the way i feel about that is i'd, I'd rather not hear about their problems me I, too i just want to be, be informed that no you didn't get in no, yeah get I, next year, I, I would too i would too i'd ra- i'd rather just get an email <laughs> saying here's the list that got in that's fine that's all i need you know, yeah, that's true. Mm. You, you, if, yeah. if you do get in, you tend to hear much earlier. Yes. Than, so yes. The, reje- the rejection letters go out woefully late. So if, if you do get in, you, you, you get to hear about it much earlier. And yeah. so when you see that email sitting in your intro, yeah, that's a happy day. Yeah, it's a happy day. It's uh, indeed. Uh, and did you quickly uh, inform Sven of the of the email that you received? I did. And he was he was very happy, very, yeah. um, uh, very happy. Uh, see, what happened was, uh, I think by the time I got to put the movie together, mm. uh, I, th- I think both of us had sort of run out of so much steam. We just we were just thinking, well, we just want to, you know, put it together, make it so it's so it's there, so it exists, so we're not sort of thinking about it anymore. Yeah. And uh, we put it out to the New Zealand Film Festival, which is quite a, a really good festival, by the way, the mm. New Zealand one. Um, it... it it sort of revolves around the main centres, all the all the main cities and and, and um, a lot of the uh, the other towns as well. So it gets seen right around the country, which is great. And my ambition was simply to show it here and just get it out there, and and that's it. Walk away. And I didn't have any great expectations for it. And what actually happened? I don't think the festival had any great expectations for it either. <laughs> and it took off, and it suddenly. It's it's it sold out all its sessions, and then they were adding more sessions, that. and they were selling out. So we had all these, you know, full cinemas and really enthusiastic crowds. Yeah. And Sven and I are looking at each other, going, <laughs> "Wow, okay." So, and I'm looking at the film, going, "Okay, what what happened here? Like, what, why is it working so well?" So it was an interesting experience for me. And uh, but um, you know, when when it was all over, we sort of thought, "Okay, well, maybe, maybe it's got a chance." So. I went and blew a whole lot of money and put out a whole lot of festival submissions, and they all flew back to me empty. Like, like oh man, yeah, we just, exactly. We just, we just couldn't get arrested, and so it sort of, in a way, it sort of brought us back to this this place where we thought, oh well, yeah, okay. And but I, 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 I every few months I'd take it into my head to go, oh, well, I'll try this festival, I'll try that festival, and, right? And um, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you get lucky. What what can you tell my listeners about MDFF? I mean, obviously, I've talked to Lyndon already. I hear that you will be attending the festival. Uh, what do you know well, about MDFF? Uh, uh, are you excited about it? Is Sven going? I, I'll be able to tell you more about it after I've been there. I mean, yeah, that makes I gather, sense. Of um, <laughs> I, I can see, you know, that, that it's quite an intimate 
um, event. Mm. Like, like we won't be we won't be playing in great big halls or anything. Sure. Um, that, that's that's cool with me. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of engagement from what I can see, which is great. It seems so. Yes. Uh, the the festival. This is always a good indication, actually, of of, of you know the, the worth of an event. There seems to be a lot of really good engagement with uh, the press and publications and online and, and you know the whole documentary making community. Um, and I've been asked to go along and, and do a master class as yes, well. Yes, so, I and, hear that. Um, Melbourne has got um, a pretty good um, film school or two there. Um, so it just seems like there's a. It's still a quite a young festival, but it seems like there's a lot of energy behind it. It seems to be very well organised, and there seems to be a lot of engagement with with its audience. So, I mean, that that bodes well. I'm excited for it. He has a lot of interesting ideas, and what's kind of nice and unique about MDFF, and I think you're going to find this out pretty quickly yourself, is that because it's in its sort of infancy stage, it's um, what is it? Only the second year of existence. He's got a lot of different ideas that he's able to incorporate and that he will even continue in the next couple of years. And uh, that's exciting because he can play around with ideas that maybe an established, um, a bigger established, uh, dare I say, corporate festival um, might not be able to do or wouldn't be able to take the kind of, kinds of risks that some of these smaller festivals can take. I mean, this is the odd, strange contradiction. There is an audience for documentaries, uh, a big one. Indeed. And... Uh, if only um, the work itself had more value in the marketplace. I think yeah. I think what's really been going wrong is that, you know, honestly, I mean, we make feature documentaries and we dream of them being up on the silver screen, but mm. really traditionally the place where documentaries made money uh, was on television. Right. And that market has gone. I mean, mm. it's just crashed. Uh, aside from, you know, HBO um, and a few other very limited opportunities which which tend to sort of be largely in-house or you've got to have a relationship with someone in-house. Right. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard to move independent authored work, you know, one-off authored films by people who aspire to an artistic vision, yeah. if you want to put it that way. It's very, very hard to find anywhere where you can monetize that kind of work. Uh, so, you know, one circles back to the reality that, that film festivals tend to be the um, the most important place where you can show that sort of thing. Uh, for me, it's become everything, really. I, I, I mean, I'm earning my living principally as a university lecturer. Funny how things work out. And I enjoy that very much. Um, and I'm lecturing in film, documentary making and screenwriting. Uh-huh. So I'm, uh, I'm, you know, staying within my field. Um and my my job actually, they expect me to carry on making films, so that's really wonderful. Yeah, that's great. But um, it means it means that I can indulge my uh, self indulgence uh, without any kind of commercial structures. Uh, it's it's good that I make films the way I do. In, in effect, this <laughs> is how you are living your documentary life. It is indeed. Uh, the truth of the matter is, Costa, I could I could continue talking for hours with you. Um, and, and You're always welcome to ring me up and chat. Well, here's the thing. We're looking to make this a, a, maybe even a two-parter because a, after a, a speaking with you, after speaking with Lyndon, and speaking to Richard Wiley, the Five Days of Lesbos uh, director, it's it, 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 it makes sense to break this up into a two-parter. And, and we're really looking forward to this being, in particular, a special 
um, a special episode where I think a lot of, I know a lot of listeners and a lot of documentary filmmakers um, can gain a lot of valuable information from this. So I don't want to, I don't want to force it into one episode. So this will probably play as a two-parter. Now, what I'd like to do in the future, um, perhaps with you, Costa, is is I'd love to uh, have a more expansive um, one-on-one conversation from one documentary filmmaker to another because, uh, uh, again, I think you have a lot of valuable information and insight to offer a lot of a lot of my listeners. And I think, as I mentioned in in email, um, we tread uh, uh, on a lot more com- common ground than I think that than you realize. And uh, and it's exci- it's always exciting to meet like-minded individuals. Mm, yes, well, you know. I really appreciate having you on the show, Costa. The film is Act of Kindness. I loved this film, and I can't wait for uh, for other people to see it. I also can't wait to hear more about MDFF after it's happened. So um, uh, thank you again, Costa, for, for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.